1: A pill produced by the pharma giant Merck is the first oral antiviral treatment for COVID-19 approved by regulators. What does it mean in the fight against the coronavirus? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show. As innovation speeds ahead at exponential rates, how does it shape business, the economy, society, and, yes, individuals?
0: I'm not sure if slowing it down is even an option for policymakers, but what we can do is be much, much smarter about how we engage with them.
1: And applying the principle of simplicity, that is Occam's razor, can you name an entity beyond necessity? Keep listening to hear our favorite answers from our latest book giveaway. But first, it's been a year since drug companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca released their results from their COVID-19 vaccine trials. Since then, over 7 billion doses have been administered around the world. In America last week, COVID-19 vaccinations were approved for use in children aged five and above. It is a landmark decision in the country's vaccination strategy. Also last week, an Indian company, Bharat Biotech, celebrated as its vaccine, called Covaxin, was given the green light by the World Health Organization. Since India has already administered more than 100 million doses of that vaccine, the news came as a relief. Vaccines have changed the course of the pandemic and allowed countries to wind down public health restrictions. The Economist even made a podcast series about the vaccine rollout called The Jab. But as winter draws near, COVID-19 is surging again in some places.
2: We are once again at the epicenter.
1: Hans Kluge is the World Health Organization's regional director for Europe.
2: According to one reliable projection... If we stay on this trajectory, we could see another half a million COVID-19 deaths in Europe and Central Asia by the 1st of February next year.
1: Although the rapid pace of vaccine development is a miracle of science, developing useful drugs and therapies to fight against the disease has been a lot more challenging. But there's good news. Britain's drug regulator has just approved an effective and affordable oral antiviral therapy against the coronavirus. The upshot is that patients can receive it at home and therefore not need to go into the hospital at all.
3: Monupiravir is an antiviral drug from Merck that has been shown to halve the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 when it's given to high-risk patients within the first five days of infection.
1: Natasha Loder is The Economist health policy editor.
3: And also, last Friday, we heard the great news that another pill to treat COVID-19 has also just had huge success in clinical trials. And this is a drug from Pfizer called Paxlovid. And in its trial, it cut hospitalization or death by 89% when given within three days. And how do the drugs work? The way they work is interesting. And molnupiravir is metabolized in the body and then incorporated into the virus as it grows. And the drug then causes genetic errors in the viral genome. And these errors are so great that the virus cannot actually replicate, which is what you want. The Pfizer drug, Paxlovid, is a protease inhibitor. And it kind of binds to these enzymes, proteolytic enzymes, and blocks their ability to function. And this, again, stops the virus from reproducing itself. Now, you can't compare the efficacies of these different drugs because they were both different patient populations, but both of them are clearly highly effective and very useful.
1: This sounds like a breakthrough for COVID-19 therapeutics, is it? Yeah, I think so. Both of these
3: are absolutely breakthrough drugs. Around the world, whether you're vaccinated or not, there must be tens of millions of people who are at serious risk from injury and death from COVID. And if you're diagnosed quickly, what this means is that you can go to your pharmacy, uh, wearing a mask hopefully as well, and then pick up a packet of pills. And these will greatly reduce your risk of getting uh, seriously ill or dying. And What it means is we can detach even further the case numbers of COVID that we're counting every day from hospitalizations and deaths. And the numbers that we see going into next year, the case numbers of COVID, just won't matter as much at all. And so these kinds of drugs are what's going to help finally move us into a world where COVID isn't a disease that we need to worry about. And it will also help countries that are struggling to obtain vaccines as well, because they'll have another tool in their toolkit. I think when we look back at the history of COVID, we'll see two milestones. And one came when we had the news of the first vaccine for COVID-19. And then on October the 1st this year, when we had this oral antiviral trial reporting for the first time. And both vaccines and oral antivirals are critical in taking us out of this pandemic.
1: Now, let me prod this a little bit more closely. In the case of the therapeutics, the patient needs to take it within several days of falling ill. But how would that be possible with what we know about COVID, in which usually there's a hump after several days of someone doing okay with symptoms, then they descend very quickly. Won't they have already lost that precious period to treat them with this therapeutic?
3: The idea is that you would start to get symptoms and you would get a test, hopefully very promptly. And at that point, you would ring up your doctor and your doctor would either say, you are at really high risk from serious COVID. You should have a course of these antivirals. Or the doctor will say, you're not really at serious risk from COVID. You should just stay at home and take care of yourself. And so that's the, the point at which the doctor would decide whether or not you were at risk from COVID. Now, you could then, of course, go on and become seriously ill and end up in hospital, at which point we do have other treatments for when you arrive in hospital, like antibody therapies and things like that. But I think that's the point. The point is, is that you have to kind of identify the people who are most at need of these drugs when they're diagnosed.
1: Will the drugs be widely available?
3: Yes, I think so. Um, I think the Merck drug, Molnupiravir, will be more widely available first. Merck has taken quite a proactive interest in making this drug widely available, and they've been working at it since at least July last year. And one of the things they're doing, which is also what Pfizer's doing, is tiered pricing. And so that means that when they sell the drug, what a country will pay will depend on how wealthy they are. But more important than this, what they're doing is they're licensing the drug very generously around the world. They've licensed it to Indian firms. They've just done a licensing deal with something called the Medicines Patent Pool, which is a UN-related agency. And that will allow many, many, many countries, many manufacturers to manufacture this drug at very low cost. And lastly, Merck's also reserved 3 million of its first 10 million doses this year for low and middle income countries. So that means that even though there's a scramble right now to get hold of this drug, low and middle income countries are not going to get squeezed out by the wealthy countries. And that's actually in marked contrast with the initial availability of the Pfizer drug. Not only is there much less available this year and the start of next, it does look like rich countries are going to snap up some of the early doses. All that said, Pfizer does want the drug to be available globally and it is in advanced discussions as well with the medicines patent pool. So I'm really hoping that a deal will come through and that this drug too can be made all around the world. How expensive is the drug? Well, in rich countries, both of these drugs are probably going to cost about $700 a course. And that sounds like a lot, but it isn't really for what you're getting. In poorer countries, I know that the Molnupiravir is going to be about $20 for a course and that as new manufacturers come online with improved manufacturing processes, that cost of that drug could decline quite a bit further. That's the intention. I know the Gates Foundation has been funding some work to try and make the drug much more widely and cheaply available.
1: Now, is there a risk, as brilliant as this is, that as we start using these antiviral drugs, that the coronavirus will develop a resistance uh, mutation to it?
3: Yeah, there's always that risk and we should definitely sort of expect the unexpected or even the expected because when you use antiviral therapies, you do get resistance arising. What will probably happen is that we will end up using these drugs in combination. And at some point down the line, we're going to be using the Merck drug with the Pfizer drug perhaps and maybe even with an antidepressant, very cheap, very widely available that reduces the risk of serious consequences of COVID by about 32%, and maybe even with another antiviral that is yet to come down the line. And we'll arrive at a position, the position actually that we have with HIV, which is that we control that virus by using combination therapies. So I think the outlook is really a positive one. And we should trust that we will continue to operate at the speed of science, um, the speed of light, and do a fantastic job in defeating this virus for once and for all. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much.
1: And for lots more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. In this week's science section, you can read about how to make concrete more environmentally friendly, or learn how eels find their way from their homes in rivers to their spawning grounds in the sea. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the show notes. Don't forget to tell them Ken sent mobile phones my grandfather was born before the wright brothers first flight only a few americans had ever seen an airplane when orville wright started the engine some eminent scientists still claimed human flight was impossible and died to the sonic boom of the concord overhead So how much has technology changed in your lifetime? Does it seem like innovation might be happening too fast? The rise of many general-purpose technologies, such as the steam engine or electricity, transformed society, and the gadgets they spawned were developed at a swift industrial pace in the 19th and 20th centuries. But that is nothing compared to the pace of digital innovations. In his new book, The Exponential Age, Azim Azhar, a technology thinker and entrepreneur, argues that a new phase of progress is underway. He believes that accelerating innovation poses new, different, and bigger challenges for businesses, governments, and society. Many institutions are unprepared for this shift because they are stuck in an industrial-age linear growth mindset. Hal Hodson, who reports on science and technology for The Economist, recently caught up with Azeem. Hal started by asking him what has caused this exponential growth in technology.
0: When you look at things like the radio and the television that went from the sort of early adopter to mass market penetration in a decade or 20, 25 years or so in some cases, and that's very, very fast compared to things like the car. But those types of technologies, those emerged on the back of core technologies that had been deployed over the previous 20 or 30 years, uh, telephone systems and electricity networks. And what we're starting to see in today's technologies partly because the economy is more globalised and integrated, partly because we are just better at taking these things on board within industry, is that the gap between technologies becoming somewhat useful and suddenly appearing has got much, much shorter. And I would say that the analogy to the radio today may well be the smartphone, but it could also be considered to be something like TikTok, which went from nothing to three billion users in just two and a half years.
2: And and I think that that's a marked difference. It's a phase change in the behavior of these technologies. One of the things that I wondered about is like the top of the S-curve. Most of these things, most growth phenomena, come in S-curves and they top out, whether because no one wants any more of it or because there's no more natural resources or we just live in a finite universe at the end of the day. What does the top of the S-curve look like for the exponential age? You
0: know, I think we're going to be surprised by where it ends up being. Uh, When I was seven years old, my family had one camera. And with a typical household, we had one camera. The average household had less than one camera. And when I put the book to press in April 2021, I counted the number of cameras we had in our household, and it came to 55 because we have two cars. Each car has four cameras. A typical smartphone now has four cameras, laptops, iPads, and other weird things. I have some cheap CCTV cameras in my back garden. It's hard to imagine back in 1979 that there'd be a 55-fold increase in the number of cameras of all things that we have. We have put computers in all sorts of things. Actually, in digital disposable pregnancy tests, our small real-time operating system embedded computer chips, and they're used once and they're thrown away. So of course, there are ultimately physical limits that we will reach. Our physicist friend of mine pointed out there are only so many protons in, in the universe, uh, so there has to be some limit. But from the perspective of where we sit and we think that there are still hundreds of millions of people without flushing toilets, there are billions of people without smartphones, we can be quite surprised about how far these technologies will end up proliferating. And that's just the IT ones, let alone when we think about things like 3D printing, which is currently producing a vanishingly small amount of useful stuff across our economies. And and so that also has quite a lot of room to run.
2: If we put numbers on it, it feels like it's decades for me rather than years. If we're going through an exponential growth of zero carbon technologies like wind and solar, why do we need to worry about climate change? It's a really
0: salient argument. And There's so much momentum in the climate system already that we're racing against something that itself is shifting dynamically. And so even as we see the ongoing declines of prices of solar and wind energy and and storage, it's not clear that they will all come together in the really short period of time that they need to come together, which would really be in the next seven or eight or nine years. But there's a second issue, of course, which is that, there's a push and pull in the economics of energy. And as we discovered with shale gas and fracking, things that dramatically reduce the price of fossil fuels can keep them competitive against even declining prices of renewables. I think the second aspect of it is that our energy needs are going to dramatically rise over the coming 30 years for two reasons. The first is that large parts of the world that are currently poor are going to get richer and they're going to want to use more energy, perhaps not as much as the West used in the 80s and 90s per capita, but they'll certainly need to use more energy. And that's many billions of people. The second is that in order to improve our industrial processes, so that we manage the externalities of these pollutions, whether it's methane or carbon dioxide or other things, we are actually going to end up needing to use more energy. And ideally, a large part of that will get met by these new renewable technologies, but not all of it. And at the same time, we have the vast momentum that's already existing in the climate system that we have to tackle. And so what that tells us is that in this intermediate period, we're going to need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. We're going to need to worry about climate change across all these other dimensions there is this intermediate process where the technologies won't arrive a sufficient numbers in time to make the question really
2: an easier one. I mean, I think they're helpful right now, but they're not sufficient. The problem is that this phase of exponentiality has been going on for a really long time. If you look at the amount of data flowing over the internet, it looks like it's in the very, very earliest stages of the hockey stick and you know potentially could keep going for a huge amount of time. And so my question to you is whether the magnitude of the exponentiality argues for governments trying to flatten the curve, trying to bend it a little bit into something that they can keep up with? Or should we basically just be waiting until it gets to the top of the S curve and then being like, "Okay, this is the new world, these are the rules?
0: I think we have to be more active than waiting. The best example are what are now called the big tech companies. And the thing that's so challenging about them is that they have these disciplines and they have this mastery of exponential technologies that makes them so very capable in so many different dimensions. So Amazon, of course, is this sort of tremendously successful powerhouse of a retailer, but it is also the biggest player in cloud computing. It's also now a large funder of media in different ways. It's tried to get into domestic robots. It's tried to get into electronic devices. And it's the third largest trucking and logistics business in the US behind the US Postal Service and UPS. It's bigger than FedEx is now. And so these type of dominant companies, these everything companies, and it's not just Amazon, you see it in other firms that have been this successful, are powerful in ways that are not purely about traditional competition economics. It's really about the weight they have within Our political decision-making in different markets. And so that, I think, is one of the real things that we need to be concerned with. I'm not sure if slowing it down is even an option for policymakers because I think the art of learning and the benefits of these technologies are too embedded for us to stop that. But what we can do is be much, much smarter about how we engage with them. And, And that engagement needs to be much, much more critical than it has been in the past. So I think that there is a an argument to say that when you have this recipe for unbridled and growing power from these new institutions, we need to come in and ask not just politicians, but other members of civil society and us as consumers as well, to step in and start to ask the right questions, because the answers aren't always obvious and aren't even indeed known today.
2: And just finally, instead of updating our existing institutions to try and close the exponential gap between them and their capacities and their rules and their norms and these new entities that are accreting power quickly. Why not just build new institutions inside Amazon or inside the space in which Amazon operates? You know, if if the digital is where this exponential increase happens, why aren't we just building entirely new kinds of institutions that are first in those spaces,
0: Well, I think we can do that. We can build new ones. They need to adhere to some sensible principles Like they need to have some form of legitimacy, which may come from democratic accountability. They also need to have some degree of independence. So Facebook has done this experiment with the Facebook Oversight Board, which is quite an interesting experiment. We need more experiments than that. And we need things that have that legitimacy and accountability. To some extent... It might come from tweaks within the existing institutions. I'm not hugely optimistic that that's what will happen. And in other places, we might need to use the good offices of an existing institution to help incubate what these new ones might end up looking like. And the trouble is that institutional change is by its nature something that's been very, very slow unless there has been some horrible and hideous shock to the system For example, the rapid creation of the United Nations after World War II occurred in a matter of weeks. But we don't want to count on some kind of catastrophe to drive the creation of these systems. My sense is that we will need to build new ones and they will emerge rather than be put together through some form of grand design. They will emerge from countries coming together who trust each other on particular issues and starting to build up some measure of an agreed collective view of the problem and then slowly that might snowball out into a compact that other nations agree with azim thank you so
2: much for coming on babbage it's been a pleasure to have you hal it's been a real honor thank you
1: and our thanks to hal hudson finally Loyal Babbage listeners know that we regularly give away a fabulous book to those who submit an insightful and delightful reply to one of our questions. We aim for answers that appeal to both hemispheres of the brain, the creative and the analytical. A few weeks ago, my colleague Alok Jha interviewed John Joe McFadden for Babbage about his book on Occam's Razor, The Principle of Simplicity. The question we asked was to name an entity beyond necessity in the universe. That is to say, something that exists but ought not. We specified that the answer can't be a person, but it can be a natural or human-made thing or even an institution or organization. And we received fantastic responses. I particularly loved pollution, fortune cookies, hair, because it requires so much upkeep, and needing to justify demands for fairness, since it should be self-evident. But my absolute favorite, and the winner, is the one that arrived, in effect, by accident. A listener named Karen Collette emailed, and in the subject line wrote, clarification, and in the text, Beyond the What of the Universe. Now, I have to confess, the email struck me as succinct and shrewd. After all, the idea of a clarification is inherently superfluous. It's a function of a flaw of ambiguity. But when my producer Jason politely informed me that I completely misread it, that the email was not meant as a response to the question, but was a sincere request for a clarification, I loved it all the more. So, Karen, you win, albeit by accident. Because what else would be in the spirit of Occam's razor than the idea of a clarification, which, after all, should not be needed if the original message was sent unambiguously. We thank all of the listeners who participated and all the responses we enjoyed reading. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. And once again, tell him Ken sent you. The producer is Jason Hoskin. Nico Rofast makes the program. And the editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukie. And in London, this is The Economist.